Welcome to Leaders Upgraded, the place where people who want to upgrade and fast track their career, their life, and their leadership journey tend to gather. I am your host, Tanvi Gautam, and I shall be speaking to the top 10% of the world's leading authors, CEOs, coaches, and thinkers to bring you some of the best and brilliant ideas to fast track your way to success. Would you like an upgrade? Let's do this. I'm excited today because I am talking to Tim Leverecht, who is the author of The Business Romantic, Give Everything, Quantify Nothing, Create Something Greater Than Yourself. To be clear, this is not a book about office romance, but bringing a little more soul into the workplace, which today is trying to measure, optimize, and predict your mood and your happiness. We're talking about the quantified self and big data is the in thing to do. In fact, did you know that there is an app called Meeting Mediator now that measures who's dominating in a meeting? So the question arises, are we entering a new era of digital tailorism and will it end well for us? The book draws upon liberal arts, philosophy, and the personal journey of Tim to engage these questions and makes for a very compelling read. So I'm looking forward to this conversation immensely. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for having me, Tony. You know, as I started reading the book, a quote came to my mind, which was actually, it's actually a part of the, the poem, which says, not all those who wander are lost. Does that kind of speak to the idea of a business romantic? Absolutely. It's it's funny you bring that up because um, that's actually a tagline that is on a on a poster used by the UK-based startup Secret Cinema, which is portrayed in my book. And Secret Cinema is is actually a really great example of the kind of romantic experiences, in this case, customer experiences that I'm I'm trying to illustrate in my book. So Secret Cinema is trying to, to reinvent the movie-going experience by not disclosing the movie that they're going to show. They email their subscribers, in this case, it's, it's really subscribers to their service, and invite them together with a certain outfit and maybe some gifts at an undisclosed location, which they just disclosed a couple of hours before the show. And so they're reintroducing secrecy and mystique into the movie-going experience at a time when the movie experience is readily available at your fingertips. Like you, can movie, you can see a movie anytime, anywhere, on iTunes and, and anywhere else. And they're trying to create artificial scarcity by by eventizing and mystifying, if you will, the movie-going experience again. And the, the, the mantra or the principle at the core of this is really what you just said, that not not those not everyone who who wonders is lost right there is value in not knowing where you're going not knowing the destination not even knowing the guardrails and and just exploring and losing control to some degree in order to have a meaningful more distinguished experience in this in this abundance of predictable quantified automated experiences that we're exposed to these days yeah you know there's gareth morgan's best-selling book called the images of the organization where he he thinks about the organization in metaphors and he talks about how the organization could be seen as a machine so it's made up of parts you know it's a mechanistic system and the organization could be seen as a living organism which grows and changes and has interdependencies or the organization as a brain but he never wrote of the organization from the romantic lens so in some ways you are bringing in a new perspective on how we can think about 
you know, the workplace and the employees and our experience of work itself. And to think about employees not just as a pair of hands and brains, but people with a heart. Would you agree with that portrayal? Oh, I would absolutely agree with that portrayal. That's music in my ears. <laughs> <laughs> Romantic music in my ears, what you just said. And I actually have to tell you a funny story. I, there is an author named Eric Liu who, who writes quite a bit about democracy and politics. And he wrote a book that's called Democracy is a Garden, Not a Machine. And interestingly enough, I was out in New York City having dinner with a friend, and my friend knew him, and accidentally we, we ran into him. It was really interesting, and we started talking, Eric and I, and he mentioned his book, and I mentioned that I was writing a book called The Business Romantic, and, and he said the world is a garden and not a machine. <laughs> and I thought that was quite beautiful. What that means is, of course, is that the garden is, is a maze, essentially, right? It's organic, it has mysteries. There isn't a... But the territory always goes beyond the map, if you will. Yeah. There's also various layers. Uh, I think what is particularly romantic about this idea of the organization being a garden is probably that it's not just one garden. It's, it's also another garden and another garden. In other words, I think the romantic believes that there isn't just one reality. There isn't just one objective truth. There are uh, parallel worlds. There are alternate, alternate realities that are possible. And I think that's actually very liberating and encouraging to acknowledge that there isn't just one organization, there's a whole layer of possible organizations in the possible world, and you don't have to be just one consistent self as a manager and leader if you show up to work. You don't have to be just a functioning performer within one system. There are all kinds of staggered layers and systems um, that you have access to. By the way, that's what I find really intriguing also about the potential of virtual and augmented reality is that is arriving at the workplace as well, that we can literally be in in parallel worlds, right? So the office can turn into a beach, can turn into uh, a journey. Can, you, can, you can literally immerse yourself in all kinds of environments through technology. I think that's actually quintessentially a very romantic quest. Yeah, I'm going to gently pull us back into the reality, reality. <laughs> that, that I think you and I are, we are from the same strain of thought when it comes to this idea of learning to live with the that space which is not predictable and perhaps should never be predicted. But I have to tell you that when I was reading the book, I realized just how steeped we are in forever trying to eliminate that concept from our lives and to try and have so much control and predictability in everything that we are trying to do in the workplace. And as you say in the book, the algorithmic truth is not the only truth in business. And I do believe that reality is contested. I mean, even within organizations, we have cultures and subcultures, and we all know what the world thinks of the HR department, and the HR department doesn't think the finance guys have a clue on how things ought to be done. So, you know, the reality, you know, perception is reality, and, and everybody's perception is, is different. But I have to I have to give you marks for courage. If I was thinking of writing this book, I would be really worried about the fact as to who would be the people who would buy this book when our business culture and workplace culture has become so, you know, quantified and and we are so focused on wanting to predict everything. So, why did you think this was the right time to start talking about this? Why is it the right time to bring as you the word you use in the book is enchantment? back into the workplace and for 
the business minded people who are listening to this podcast can romanticism in the workplace be a differentiating factor for your business yeah that question is is of course a very valid one and i'm getting this a lot it's like well it's nice to be a business romantic but how do i avoid going broke <laughs> if i follow simply my my calling and, and my heart and my intuition and so i wrote this book because i mean first of all i wrote it because i wanted to portray a vision of a business world that i want to live in i think that's why everybody is writing books really in the first place but i i also sensed that the time was ripe for you know there definitely for a backlash against the culture of optimization and quantification i think there's a great sense of frustration not only at the workplace but also in our lives as citizens and consumers that we're just narrowed and reduced to algorithms and our track records and basically just a set of numbers and, and metrics and and those technologies you know with all their merits that they in that they you know without doubt bring has become very invasive at the workplace and, and really at the cost of our humanity so i think there's a there's an audience out there and i and i'm actually quite encouraged by the responses that i've gotten to the book of people who are either closet romantics um, or have become cynics but there is a spark there and by reading the book my hope is that they that they realize, oh, you know, this is actually, I hadn't had access to this kind of thinking, but I'm actually, I am a romantic. I have these um, sentiments and I have these needs. So this is giving me a language to identify myself and, and come out, if you will, as a business romantic. So that's definitely one reason and one audience I was trying to, to target. But there are also, I think, and that's why it's a business book and not just a, you know, a philosophical treatise or an essay or so, or a poem. There are, I think, very concrete business benefits to this, which is the fact that we know from, from Gallup survey that only 13% of employees worldwide are fully engaged at work. We also know that there's a great disconnect between the perception of managers and, and their staff in terms of buy-in and belief in the mission and the purpose of an organization. So all these metrics, if you then you know, want to want to cite these metrics, they underscore that there's a great sense of frustration, there's a disenchantment uh, going on at the workplace um, and beyond, and also a great, great disconnect between um, people and and trust in, in business and the role of business in society. And and I think that comes at, a, at an economic cost for organizations. Uh, on the one hand, in terms of attrition, so it is, as we know, very expensive to replace and rehire and any attrition, especially of, of really talented people, is a, is a huge burden that companies should avoid. And secondly, I think introducing the notion of romanticism and creating experiences that people really love, that they're passionate about, uh, creates a sustainable competitive advantage in terms of customer loyalty. So it's really the difference between liking because of functionality and utilitarian value and loving. It's the difference between, if you will, Dell and Apple, right, and and other brands that are truly, truly loved. And so there is a there's a talent economic benefit for organizations, but there's also a significant benefit in terms of attracting and sustaining customers if you are a romantic organization, a romantic brand. Those are the reasons I wrote this book, and I, I yeah, I feel very encouraged by, by the response it's gotten so far. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think it fits fits right in with, with the ideas that I think uh, future-ready leaders need to absolutely pay attention to. I wanted you to talk a little bit about the story that you tell in the book about the the Olympics as a perfect example of coexistence of the romantic imperative and the business imperative. I thought that that very beautifully illustrated how there need not necessarily be an either and or 
but that that these things could coexist. So would you tell us that story? Yeah, in, in 2004, I had what I still consider probably the most meaningful professional experience in my life, which also happened to be the most romantic professional experience, if you will, aside from, from meeting my wife, of course, that year as well, coincidentally. I worked as, a, as an advanced press chief for the Olympic torch relay that led up to the Olympic Games in Athens, and it was the first ever global torch relay that visited 32 former Olympic host cities, and then also, for the first time, African soil, Cairo. And I remember standing in Tahrir Square in Cairo, and I think it was July 2004. I was surrounded by thousands of Egyptians who were proud and, and, and very cheerful about the torchbearers in their, in their city. And I was exhausted, and, and, and it was very exhilarating, but I also was surrounded by the sponsors. They were breathing down my neck. And I think what I realized in that moment is that, that the Olympic idea, despite its, its commercial exploitation and the sponsors who were so, so visible all along the way when I worked as a press chief, the Olympic idea is still such a powerful idea. It, it moves people's imaginations. It moves their hearts and minds. And it didn't really matter to what degree it was commercialized. There was a purity to the vision that could not be compromised by the, the commercial exploitation. So I, I think what I realized is that it's possible to find meaning in that tension between commerce and a, a really meaningful, profound idea such as, such, as, such as the Olympics. And I realized also that it was this, that this intensity was something that I wanted to feel again and again in my, in my career. And that's very hard because, I mean, what I did after this, this gig with the Olympics, I returned and worked for an enterprise software productivity company. So nothing against enterprise <laughs> software <laughs> companies, but I was, I was stuck in an office and I was rewarded for maintaining certain routines, for eliminating risk. And this, 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 this extreme emotion and the sense of adventure that I had felt with the Olympics was, was gone. And I, that became... The question of my of, the, of my career ever since, how is it possible to maintain a sense of wonder and awe even in the seemingly mundane environment of day-to-day business? How is it possible to keep the flame alight? And my book proposes 10 rules of enchantment that, that give you some very specific tools and techniques to do that, sometimes by just introducing some very, very small actions, some small manipulations to, to day-to-day processes. So that was, in a way, my my romantic coming of age, if you will, <laughs> at the Olympics, at the, you know, that was the source of the idea for the book. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was a very powerful story. And I think it, it, it just helps us understand that, you know, these things can coexist. And I think a lot of, a lot of organizations have kind of swung to, to the other extreme. Um, and it's time to kind of bring the romance back, so to speak, into the workplace. So, you know, the question arises, can one be too much of a business romantic, just as there are people who have become, you know, too much of the data analytics and all of that? Do you think there's, there is a possibility that there might be some people who have swung, who can swing to the other end of the pendulum? That's a, that's a really good question that I've been, been thinking about, that I was thinking about when I was writing this book. The, the true romantics, so going back to the literally literature movement of the 18th, 19th century, would, of course, hate me for saying that moderation is a good thing because it's it's the romantics would would not tolerate <laughs> moderation. They were like they always go to the extreme and no, but I think yes, I mean absolutely I think if, if you are only a romantic and you do not allow the voice of reason 
and the quantified truth and data-driven insights into your business, you will not succeed either. I think it's really um, about a balance. But I believe because the pendulum has swung so extremely to the the side of the, the quantified, automated, datafied truth, and we really have turned this into the holy grail and the lowest common denominator of most of our business decisions, Whoever has the numbers wins, whoever has the data wins, right, in, in, in meetings typically. I think that's really a reason why I think we need to really move and have this pendulum swing back to the other side more extremely. So I'm making a very fervent, a very passionate, a very radical case for more romance in business in order to balance what I believe is really an aberration and, and a big flaw in our current thinking, which is so myopically focused on on, on datafication. So, but at the end, of course, I'm not against data. I'm not against technology, and I'm actually very interested in how we can use data to create romantic and, and more intuitive experience in business. Yeah. So I do a lot of work on corporate storytelling, and believe it or not, I've actually led a session in a room full of accountants, and the title mm-hmm. of the session was "Narrative Before Numbers." And mm-hmm. I told my husband, if I come out of this alive, <laughs> it will be a with my cap. Because how do you talk to a bunch of people who who only understand numbers that, you know, if you don't put forward the the narrative or the story that your numbers are trying to tell, it's not going to get anywhere. And I think that, um, you know, data-based storytelling is a very powerful example of the fact that you can blend, um, you know, both sides uh, of the conversation in a very meaningful manner. So I understand what you're saying, that you're not against data, but you're also for romance. And one doesn't have to be, uh, you know, against the other to be for one. So, you know, you said in the book that business romantics find as much worth in the process as they find in the end product. And so... I was curious, you know, what are the top three signs that I might know I'm talking to a business romantic? Like, And I know the corporate audience listening in right now might be saying, go on, Tim, tell us the top three competency traits of a business romantic. What would you say uh, mm-hmm. they are? And actually, I know there are more than three because you placed an ad for a business romantic you talk about in the book. So tell us a bit about that experience and and off that long list, what do you think are the top three uh, that give away a person who's a business romantic? That's right. I did place um, a fictitious job description on the ground zero of, of the transactional marketplace, uh, Craigslist and other job posting sites, simply because I wanted to test the market demand for my uh, idea of a business romantic. And it was actually really amazing what happened. I think within a week or so, we got... Um, about 100 applications, and some of them clearly identified the job description as spoof, and they were they were very playful in their response and, and had fun with it. But we also got some we got some applications from people who took it quite seriously, or at least wrote us in a very earnest way, and very very moving letters of people who said this is exactly the kind of job that I would like to have. This is really beautiful, and I I, I wish I I wish I'd be allowed to. I were allowed to to live up to these to these traits, but unfortunately, it's not possible in the current business environment, which was very disheartening and, and actually then motivated me even more to to craft the rules of, of enchantment to give these people a framework. So in that job description, the traits that I had identified are definitely the ability to to defy logic and data and have the courage sometimes to make decisions despite 
data that's available that might actually state the opposite. So if you are in a meeting and someone says, no, we, we, I know the data says this, but listening to my intuition, I know that it's not only the right thing to do, but it also feels like it's the right thing to do. Then you probably know you, you're dealing with a business romantic. I think another key trait is actually the ability to doubt. So I'm always actually slightly put off by people who, and that's very true, I think, still for, for leaders and managers in business who, who just pretend that they know it all and that they are these consistent, flawless leaders who, who never doubt themselves or others and, and have really a you know, privileged access to the one and only truth. I think the ability to, to doubt is really key. As Graham Greene, the writer, said, doubt is at the heart of the matter. So I think if you're able to, to doubt yourself, then you exhibit a certain vulnerability that actually creates trust and that suggests that you believe that there's always another truth out there, another world. And I think that's, uh, that's really a core trait of a business romantic as well. And maybe just to, to name a third one, I think it's the ability to fall in love with, with ideas and, and memes and projects and, and, and be actually not hamstrung or constrained by sort of the idea that you have to, to temper yourself and you have to moderate your, your emotions. I think emotions are very, very powerful in business and understanding them, being aware of them and actually living them, especially if they are positive, of course, and their passion and enthusiasm, it can be incredibly motivating and incredibly energizing. So there, we should not be so afraid of allowing these extreme emotions into our decision-making and into our um, day-to-day business. There's research um, by McKinsey, actually, and other firms that prove that proves that emotionally aware and emotionally intelligent organizations um, possess a, a really significant competitive advantage long-term in terms of creating trust amongst their employees and trust um, amongst their customers. So all these are reasons why I think the traits of a business romantic are not just a, a pipe dream, but actually have real significant economic benefits for any business. Yeah, I think that 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 could that's a perspective I completely you know understand. But you know we've been talking about the business romantic as an individual. Can a culture of an organization be classified as a business you know romantic culture? So I'm just thinking you know in in a culture that values this or a culture that that has a lot of this in their environment. For example, I think people might be more forgiving or failure perhaps because they are not looking for those you know watertight solutions that have figured the world out and you know you move from point a to point b have you given some thought to that in terms of you know corporate cultures embracing this idea at all yeah i i think at the core the the idea of romanticism is a very individualistic one so it really in, in the first place i think it really caters to the individual that's how it started and originally, and I think that's mainly what my, my book is about. But that said, I mean, the idea is that there are enough individuals in an organization. And by the way, it doesn't matter how big that organization is. You can always create pockets of romance, if you will, in small corners, of even a Fortune 500 organization. So if there's a critical mass and enough individuals doing it, then this individual change, this individual habit can become a collective organizational habit, and the culture can indeed change. I'm a little skeptical about business romanticism becoming a top-down, firm-wide strategic <laughs> initiative. So I, I, I'm not sure if I can envision the CEO yeah. at a town hall meeting saying, oh, we're going to become you know, a, a romantic organization. Here are sort of the five strategic pillars that we're going to implement tomorrow. I think that would be very much the opposite of romance. So it needs to be organic. It needs to, come, it needs to be a groundswell. It needs to be grassroots in order to be successful. But, you know, I, I was 
there are organizations. I, I don't think there is like one quintessential romantic organization out there, but there are firms, Etsy, an organization that's very much centered around authenticity and, and passion, you know, virgin service of brands and probably counts, I think, as, as, a, as a business romantic uh, through and through. Yeah. I think there are some companies that exhibit parts of the, the kind of culture that I'm trying to describe, but I, I don't think there is just this one shining example that to 100% epitomizes what my book is about. Right. I, and for those of you who want to get started on the journey, there is a business romantic starter kit at the end of the book, which provides you with the 15 steps. It provides you with a playlist. It provides you with the movies, the destinations, all for the business romantic. And it sounded to me very much like it, you could almost build a tribe out of it. I really enjoyed uh, reading that section. So I would encourage everyone to, to look that up. It's been fabulous talking to you, Tim. I really appreciate the time you have taken for our listeners. And we will definitely put a link to your book and your Twitter handle and the rest of it in our show notes. So thanks for being here. Um, and, and thank you for reminding us that there is an alternate way to think about things. <laughs> thank you so much, Tommy. I really enjoyed being on the, on the show. And And I think I'll end the show finally with a quote that I found in the book, which I have read many times since, which says, to romanticize the world is to make us aware of its magic, mystery, and wonder. It is to educate the senses to see the ordinary as extraordinary, the familiar as strange, the mundane as sacred, the finite as infinite. I simply love that. So I encourage you all to pick up that book and find that romance that is missing in the workplace. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for tuning into the podcast. That concludes this episode of Leaders Upgraded. But wait, your journey is just getting started. Go to www.leadersupgraded.com for more insights, more inspiration, and more tools to continue the journey. And if you have someone who you would like to nominate for the podcast, or a particular topic you'd like us to cover, then also visit www.leadersupgraded.com and let us know. If you like this episode, please do share it. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And I look forward to continued upgrades with you. Take care.